everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Tessa, and today on our panel we have Ari Clark. Hello. Guest panelist Ringo Cam. Hi. And our special guest for this episode is Felix Park. Felix, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Felix. I've been a game designer slash programmer in the games industry for eight years, working on any number of projects from small indie titles to big AAA games, and uh, I'm really glad to be here. So what does it mean to be a game designer exactly? So game design is basically, there's a really great sort of metaphor here proposed by a game designer named Liz England. I think she's over at Ubisoft Toronto these days. So if you look at a door in a game, there's a number of different things that go into that door. So there's the art of the door, which is like what the artists make, what the artists make. And if you need to animate the door, then the animators make the animation for the door. The actual function of the door opening and closing, literally like trying to trigger that animation or trying to place that door, sort of be able to render it in the game itself. That's like a programming role. But a game designer would sort of decide what the door does, what function the door has in the game. Do you need a key to open the door? They, they basically answer all the questions regarding the context of the door. So game design sort of encompasses like the design of things inside games versus like implementation of them. Although it does trips in implementation sometimes, but that's basically a long-winded answer to like what a game designer does, because you tend to get that question a lot when you're talking to people who aren't super familiar with it. But, but basically game designers decide if there is a door in a game, like what does it do? How do you open it? What other context is in there? And sort of try and do that in order to make an enjoyable game experience for someone. Very cool. So like, can you talk a little bit more, I guess, about if this falls under game design, correct me if I'm wrong, like the art of leading the user to the door or somehow creating inferences for them to figure out how to use the door? Because I feel like that's something that we have a lot in web design as well, is like, how can we make this app as usable as possible? Oh, yeah. In terms of like usability, I guess it's all under in app development to be under the sort of the umbrella of like user experience slash user interface design. There is a pretty large analog between that and like game development where game designers will try to figure out like how do we push players towards certain things, pull them away from certain things, try to streamline the experience and make things attractive to use, try to integrate affordances into how you might use that, use things in games or how you navigate spaces. So yeah, definitely a large analog for that. Are there certain tricks that you like to use or like have you ever maybe designed a feature and then when you were testing it out, users were not interacting with the things the way that you had expected and so you had to change up the design? In other words, have you failed? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's pretty much part and parcel of game design is to, as much as you can within your abilities, to be able to test your things. So play tests are super common as like, a iterative step in game design where you just kind of bring it in front of players, whether that be anything as informal as like you call a friend over and have them play your game for a bit to staging like very complex focus tests where you're tracking a lot of analytics when they're playing the game. Everything from the very informal stuff to the very like formal stuff, like try to integrate at any step in the design process those things to, to make essentially a better experience for the player especially if like say in AAA games so very very large scale games like you want to make a game that essentially anybody can pick up and play because you need to have the widest browse appeal to have like the widest possible audience so 
testing is a super important step in that because you don't want to create anything that even someone who's not super familiar with games generally, like might not know controls very well or might have some difficulty with sort of the, some of the more obscure parts of games that require a certain amount of literacy. Say you have like knowing that if you enter a space and there's a certain camera angle that it's facing towards, I'd just say a cutscene. So a non-interactive segment plays out. The camera is aligned towards a particular direction. If you're pretty literate in games, you, you kind of realize, oh, I should like go in that direction. But sometimes people will, if they're not so familiar with the, the language of sort of how cameras work in, say, especially 3D games, how cameras work in 3D games, they might be inclined to just like go off in very unusual directions that the designer doesn't anticipate. So even in that case, we have to constantly strive to make sure that people are being guided towards like a optimal, not so frustrating experience, unless we do want to frustrate them, in which case that's like an entirely different design challenge. But yeah, like basically that is sort of the goal is to make sure that like anybody can play our games with the most minimum amount of like, hopefully most minimum amount of direct interference or touch on that. Yeah, that like reminds me of like natural scroll on MacBooks and how I always have to turn it off because I feel like it's very unnatural. And also I was thinking about like the conversation we had where I was complaining to you about how like in all of the 3D games, like when the cutscene ends and you go back to your character, do they do that like shoulder relaxing thing? And anyway, I was wondering if for our listeners before we move on, if you could briefly explain what a triple A game is. Oh yeah. So AAA games are very informal designation, but usually when we split up the kind of essentially product that you make in the industry. So AAA game would slot into the sort of the most expensive productions. So if you could make an analog to like, say, filmmaking, the AAA game would be like the sort of blockbuster that gets released in the summer. Very high budget, large teams involved. With AAA game, you typically see a budget in you know several millions with a team size of like a hundred people or more, going up into the thousands for some of the biggest like yearly releases. And also, yeah, you'd expect like sort of the most deployment as well. So AAA games tend to be on like multiple different platforms to be able to be purchased. Although technically, the AAA games I work on are, are exclusive to Sony platforms, which is sort of its own sector of of AAA games. Yeah, the app I work on is also exclusive to the Chrome platform. So that's the same thing, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's basically, yeah. So what led you to game design? As I know that that can be a hard space to break into and also stay in. So why? (laughs) Why do anything? Um, (laughs) Felix. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I got started sort of, I mean, it's pretty typical. As a kid, I played a lot of video games along with reading books or going outside and when you still could go outside. It basically started sort of like, from, uh, it started solidifying my mind that this was an actual viable career after sort of picking up on articles in gaming enthusiast magazines. I had like subscriptions to, because I was a big reader back when I was a kid. So as you do as a child, you, you get gaming magazine subscriptions. So I had one to as like- As you do. Yeah, as you do. So I had one to like Electronic Gaming Monthly. I had one to Nintendo Power. And so occasionally you'd see these like sort of interest pieces 
regarding game developers and sort of like, what are game developers? Because the sort of knowledge base around sort of game development was very, very obscure. It's pretty, it's pretty insular development community. Even now, like back then, it was like pretty much impenetrable to, to any consumer, but it's gotten a lot better recently with a lot more exposure, but it's still fairly common to see people who don't really know that people make video games, not just computers that you just click on a button in like some mythical computer program and then it suddenly just poops out a game. I'm pretty sure you guys <laughs> run into the same issue in, in app development as well. All uh, the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So as a kid, I, I got an insight into that and that really intrigued me that like people made these things. And, you know, it was either that or become like the great next American novelist and in college I like how that was your fallback plan <laughs> yeah no no yeah well those are the only two things i really liked like wanted to really pop into was doing creative writing or playing video games that was like my two main activities and so in college like i actually went to my undergraduate because they had like a really sick they had a it was a really good school with a great creative writing program, but also they had a graduate school that specialized in entertainment technology. It was, uh, it was Carnegie Mellon's Entertainment Technology Center. And I actually heard about that through a article I read in middle school in an electronic gaming monthly. So <laughs> it was very, it was all kind of confluential on all my life decisions. This, Do you like, have that random framed article. like above your desk? <laughs> I should actually, I have all my magazines back in my, back at home. So I should actually like poke through and see like if I could find the, the sole inspiration. But after graduating from school in 2010, like the economy was still very bad. There weren't a lot of gigs for people with a writing degree going around. So I decided to sort of either apply to grad school and get into that, get into that grad school I, I'd been hoping to get into, or I guess go teach English in Korea for a few years and sort of like put my life on pause. But luckily I got into grad school and Yay. from there, here I am. Yeah, it's, it's basically the design focus also was sort of the result of me being always interested in design as a discipline, whether that, you know, was industrial design or graphic design, sort of like seeing like the ways that creating objects of some utility that people can use or experience has always kind of held an interest for me that that first very sort of like general design thinking exercise sort of mindset has always sort of appealed to me. So design was sort of a, a natural way for me to get in there. Also, I have no other particular talents in art programming, <laughs> or which is ironic because I'm a programmer now. But, you know, for a long time, my programming aptitude was like not great. So in terms of contribution, that was like pretty much my go-to. Not only because of my preferences, but also also because of like my absences in terms of like skill sets. Well, that's pretty interesting because I feel like when you started your job in the game industry, it's not like you hadn't been exposed to coding before, right? Yes. So I I started making like very small, almost hypercard esque experiences in HTML for my friends back in middle school. And for for our listeners. Oh. I'm surprised that I've heard of HyperCard, but can you explain what HyperCard is? HyperCard was this software that Apple made way back in the day for like old Macintosh, like think Mac OS, like going on. I used it on Mac OS 9. Uh -huh. And you could create sort of like almost these interlinked 
slideshows. I don't want to like say too much about it because I'm not super familiar with it. But basically, you could sort of create text that you could then like click on a link and then go to another thing. So I think HyperCard was originally like either like some sort of like almost like presentation software. I actually do not know at all. Uh, <laughs> I've technically never even used HyperCard. I just know about it because it's a very popular reference in the game development community. But now like I'm revealed as some sort of like a sham. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But what I would do is I was essentially making a, a choose your own adventure book, but it was a web page. And so I would just write a little story blurb, include a link of like what choices you could have, and then you could click on the link and then go to another page that had another like sort of interesting thing going on. And so I started making those as my first sort of like interactive games way back in like middle school, like sort of turn of the century. Oh, wow. It's really weird to refer to like... I believe you mean millennium. <laughs> the turn of the millennium. That's even crazier. Anyway, but from there, I like did computer science in high school because I was interested in the subject. I was always like kind of keen on like computers as anybody probably in their 20s or 30s listening to this podcast was back in the day. And then... 20s, 30s, 40s, or 50s. Sorry, we don't, I don't want to be exclusionary. And so, yeah, going into it, into college, I took like, I, I actually got a minor in computer science, but I failed out of doing a double major because I couldn't do linear algebra. So going into the industry, like I had some programming knowledge, but nowhere near the amount that I think one would require to actually do a full-time gig in the games industry. But as the years progressed, I sort of like accumulated knowledge on the job, as you could say along with like doing stuff as a hobby, like just programming in my free time. You know, the hustle culture, I guess you'd call it. Uh, <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you guys are real pro hustle culture, you know, like just work all the time, don't take breaks. Yeah. Yeah, not, not so much my mode nowadays, definitely. Never has been for me. Excellent. I'm lazy. <laughs> no, that's, that's, not, that's not laziness. That's, that's like taking care of yourself, honestly. I have to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Does yeah. not end well. So Felix, going back to game design, right? I think you were talking about like educating the users, right? Educating the, the person that is playing the games. Like how do you lead a user to make certain decisions? Like what tools do you use? Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh yeah. You could use basically anything at your disposal. It's really great because games are this like Thing you just make up in its entirety. You can down to down to very weird, basic physical, what we perceive as physical elements, you can use all of them to influence people. Whether that's like lighting, you if you want to lead someone somewhere, so using a very simple example of navigation, if you want to lead someone to say like a platform, you can light the platform differently. You can actually just add a light in there to emphasize this thing in the space and then darken everything else. You can use UI to do it. So you can have a floating element that has like big circle like on it being like, go here or like an arrow. If you want to be particularly inelegant, that, that's a very popular go-to. You could slow time down, manipulate the view of the player, emphasize this thing and then go back. But it could also be very something very delicate as well. The example I mentioned before, like pointing, just simply pointing the camera somewhere. Mm -hmm. That is like, what a very, very like easy touch to go to in terms of like leading someone to a certain certain location. Like you can make sound cues where 
music would slowly get louder the more you like go towards a certain direction. There's a number of tools you can do, basically everything under the sun. But that's actually like a very trodden ground in terms of game design thinking is guiding the player navigation-wise. Where it gets really tricky is when you want them to do something like completely unexpected, in which case, like ideally, your design would follow very naturally. So the uh, sort of affordances available to the player in order to accomplish some goal you have in mind for them would make sense as like a thing in the real world that you do. So affordance is a term that is used pretty commonly through many fields of design. It originates from a book called The Design of Everything, or... Is it the one with like the red kettle? It is the one with the red kettle, yes. The Design of Everyday Things. So affordances are lifted from a book called The Design of Everyday Things by this usability engineer named Donald Norman. I think this was written back in like the 80s, I believe. Affordances are basically sort of the... I'm going to really mangle this explanation up. But at least from what I understand, affordances are sort of like the concept of what is possible with a thing as expressed through its design. So if you see, say, a scroll bar, scroll bars don't have any wiggle room from side to side if you're looking at a vertical scroll bar. So hopefully that design communicates to the user that they can only go up and down. Same thing with a horizontal scroll bar. If you have a car's shifter in front of you, hopefully that can communicate to you the the design of the shifter and sort of like where the stick of the shifter can go. Hopefully that communicates to the user that the affordance of this is limited in certain ways. So affordance is sort of this concept of how does the design communicate its use to the user? And so in games, this is very important because in the virtual world, anything is possible. You want to be able to really limit sort of like the space of possibility within the player's mind, or else they'll kind of be stuck. They'll be at a loss as to what to do to say progress or move forward or to accomplish goals. If everything is possible, then you can attempt everything and sort of like, and sort of experience failure repeatedly until you find the exact right answer that the developer had in mind for you. Except, of course, in like more open-ended games, in which case there are many, many examples of the genre where the purpose is to make it so that it's more of a sandbox for the player, that a lot of affordances are available at all times. And sort of the fun of the game is to be able to explore that and to come up with novel solutions. But for most games and sort of the games I make, the affordances are fairly limited just so that like you have a sort of optimum linear experience. So I guess, yeah, the difference would be like linearity versus non-linearity of the experiences, uh, as well as also consideration when deciding your affordances. So let's say that you wanted them to be able to cross a river in the game. Ideally, maybe in the space, if you have like, uh, let's say it's an action adventure game where you have free movement of the character and free movement of the camera. It's just like Mario or Uncharted or God of War, any number of very popular games in that space you can if you say have a it's very hard to sort of think about this kind of stuff sometimes because your mind wants to leap to very like easy solutions but let's go for a naturalistic solution here if you encountered a stream in real life what would you do maybe you'd find a wooden pallet no because that would float down the stream let's say you have a 
I mean, how big is the stream? I feel like you could just step over. <laughs> exactly, right? Okay, let's say it's like a six-foot stream. Let's say you have a six-foot stream. You can't jump the gap. Okay. But you do have a ladder nearby. So you can grab the ladder, set it down, and then walk across the ladder. Well, how does the player know that the ladder is even interactable, right? You have to like place a big old prompt on it, maybe, or you have the camera point to it after the character says, huh, I need to cross this gap. And then not so subtle camera turn to the ladder. So that that's like a thing that can correspond to the real world. But then you have stuff where, let's say you're playing like a very cartoony, unrealistic game, and you have like hover boots. So how do you know where to use the hover boots? So let's say the hover boots don't last forever. Let's say they have like a activation time of say like maybe 10 meters. So how do you point out to the player that certain gaps are jumpable versus certain gaps are not jumpable? If you have a gap that's like say 13 meters, you want to make it very, very clear to the player that that is not achievable or else they'll attempt it, fail, and then they'll have to start over again. And they'll have to do this like 50,000 times and that, that can lead to something else. So you need to d- establish design language of some sort to be able to tell the player like, no, this is not jumpable or no, you can't use the hover boots here or no, you, or yes, you can use the hover boots here. Whether that is like having every gap that's 10 meters or less, like very clearly like signposted versus anything else like and so that, that almost allows you to sort of go like, if I were to say a, a level designer, which is what we call people who usually build out these spaces in games. If I were a level designer, I'd say, okay, we need a moratorium here. We have to prohibit any gap that is 10 meters or it is more than 10 meters to 20 meters. 20 meters is, we've play tested this. We found out that like people will constantly try to attempt gaps anywhere in that range. But at 20 meters, people are like, fully in the zone of like, I cannot jump this. So that's actually pretty safe. Otherwise, like anything between those distances, like we're hereby now disallowing. And so that will then extend to the, the entire game itself to like sort of establish a design language around around the spaces and what affordances are available to the player. And so through that, you can start to come up with, I guess, a sort of system of what you're available to use to guide the player around, especially with the repetition of certain guideposts, right? So let's say I use that camera move like once in the game. And then if the player gets that, then they'll kind of know and internalize that that is sort of like, oh, the developer, maybe not consciously, but maybe subconsciously, they'll be like, oh, the developer wants me to go over here and, or the designer wants me to go over here and like pick this thing up or go over here if the camera points there. And so as you start doing this repetition you know, of like how you guide the player around, hopefully they internalize that and we'll then have an easier time going through the game and sort of like experiencing it. And so, yeah, guiding the player sort of encompasses all of the above, which is a lot of just golf, I guess. Yeah, that's definitely like very difficult to balance, right? Like how do you define like a good system? Like what is the balance between like too much handholding versus like no handholding at all and the user won't be able to efficiently find the right solution like there must be a balance for that right how do you balance it like what's a good example of that yeah that's a great question actually it's a very subtle thing because it depends on sort of how you want to present the game think about say a lot of times the way i thought about in jobs is pacing right so to have a maximally taxing experience at all times leads to like a fairly different play experience than like having a having a game that's like very easy all the time for a really like optimum i guess psychologically you'd call it sort of a hook of like being able to play a game and sort of like have a good time with it and play it for longer periods of time 
you want to pace it out. So you essentially have high intensity moments of, say, difficulty interspersed with low intensity moments. In that case, the context of at what time you're doing the stuff would lead you to sort of make that decision of, of the difficulty balance. So that would be like local maximums and local minimums of, of difficulty. But for like, say, the difficulty over an entire game or say like very classically, like a difficulty setting in a game where I'm playing like I'm playing on normal difficulty, easy difficulty, hard difficulty. To be honest, the best thing I've seen in order to be able to balance that and make those decisions is playtesting. You look at, say, the subjective experience of a playtester who is like, I usually play games on hard difficulty. Let me play your game and see like how many times I die or how many times I'm frustrated by things. If I think it's like if I'm having too easy of a time, like you try to get their gauge of like if that game has met their expectations or not. And also you try to use your own intuition, which depending on the type of game designer you are, might have varying results. But but for the most part, in terms of deciding things, it's it's basically up to your own personal preference. If you're just sort of like freewheeling, if you have a lot of focus on sort of player experience, then that would lead you to integrate more player feedback into that process. And that's all for this week's episode. Join us next time when we discuss user testing and striving for work-life balance. And until then, enjoy the view. Enjoy the view.